Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. Jesus Christ came to the earth not to make life easy for us, but to make us godly. In order to accomplish that, he did four things. He died, he arose, he ascended, and he sent the Holy Spirit. The death and resurrection of Christ paid the penalty for sin and made it possible for us to be forgiven of our sin. The ascension and the resurrection, I'm sorry, and the sending of the Holy Spirit provides the power for us to overcome the flesh. So by these works, Jesus Christ made it possible for us to live a godly life. But it isn't quite that simple. There is a struggle that ensues in the heart and soul of the believer. There is a brutal battle going on, is the truth of the matter, a battle between the flesh and the spirit, so that the two struggle against each other. And after a fashion, sometimes the war-weary saint wants to just give in to the flesh or give up and get out. Just give the flesh his way. He becomes so discouraged and so defeated. Paul discusses that struggle in depth in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Perhaps the most extensive, detailed description of the struggle and defeat of a believer is in the latter part of Romans chapter 7. In the opening verses of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul comes to the conclusion that in the indwelling Holy Spirit is the ultimate solution to this inbred sin that causes our problem. So that he then argues that we ought to take the high road of the Spirit and not the low road of the flesh. Now, I suppose that if you know anything at all about the Scripture, if you're a taught believer, you know what I have just said. So let me ask a question. We all know that we ought to take that high road provided by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but let me ask, why should we? Maybe that goes without saying. But maybe also we should ask, because there are many times when we don't take that road, even when we know that we should. What are my obligations to take that way of the Spirit that God has provided so that I can have power over the flesh as well as being saved from the penalty of sin? In Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 12, Paul gives us several reasons as to why 
we are obligated as believers in Jesus Christ to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. So turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, and let's begin with verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of adoption again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. As I understand these verses, <clears throat> Paul is giving us three reasons why we as believers in Jesus Christ are obligated to walk according to the Spirit. He has just said in the first 11 verses that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And if we walk according to the Spirit and are spiritually minded, then we will have victory over the law of sin and death. Now he concludes, verse 12, therefore, brethren. By the little word therefore, he indicates that he's drawing a conclusion based on what he has just said. Most specifically, he said at the end of verse 11 that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. But he also indicates in verse 12 that he is speaking to us as Christians. He is speaking directly to the Roman readers and calling them brethren. But one other observation. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, brethren, we... Earlier... He talked about you. Matter of fact, that's the last word in verse 11. But now he includes himself, and he draws a conclusion from all that he has said, and he makes this statement. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, what he is saying is this. We are obligated to walk according to the Spirit because if we walk according to the flesh, it leads to death. But if we walk according to the Spirit, it leads to life. Now that's the thought of those first two verses. Let's look at that in a little more detail. He says in verse 12, we are debtors not to the flesh. We are not debtors to the flesh. It is as if he is saying that I live in a house called my body. And uh, that house has a mortgage on it. And I am a debtor to pay the mortgage in acts of sin. He described that bondage in Romans chapter 7. But now he's making the statement in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, we are not debtors to the flesh, that this body 
has a new owner. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that we were bought with a price. We were bought by Jesus Christ with his own blood. Furthermore, this house has a new inhabitant, none other than the Holy Spirit of God. So that I am no longer a debtor, I don't have to make mortgage payments, so to speak, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now he further explains in the next verse by saying, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now you're not obligated to make these payments, but if you continue to sin, that will lead to death. For many years, I thought that the word death in verse 13 was a reference to physical death. I don't doubt that that may be ultimately involved. At the same time, many commentators, and I'm not alone in this by any stretch of the imagination, have said that this is not just physical death alone and directly. Because according to this verse, you can live according to the flesh or you can live by the Spirit, and frankly, you're going to die physically either way. But rather, I think that death in Romans 6, 7, and 8 has with it not just the idea of physical death, but as I have argued throughout these chapters, beginning back in chapter 5, that there is a sphere of death. When you are walking in the flesh, something dies. Your fellowship with the Lord dies. And I think he is saying in verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Only notice he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but you have another alternative, and that is if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now his whole argument is that we have received the Holy Spirit. We're not obligated to live by the flesh, but we have received the Holy Spirit, and we can then live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Now he talks in verse 13 about by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. Earlier in this chapter, he talked about being spiritually minded. Remember that? It's back up in verses uh, 5 and 6. He talked about walking according to the Spirit. That's in verses 1 and 4. That throughout this chapter... He's talked about uh, being spiritually minded, having a spiritual walk, developing spiritual habits. Now that is what I think he means when he gets down to verse 13 and talks about if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, as you develop the spiritual mindedness, as you walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God, in obedience to the Word of God, you end up producing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, fruit like love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. So that uh, the fruit of the Spirit is produced, and as the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the spiritual life, the deeds of the body, the works of the flesh, just slowly 
die. Let me illustrate. Let me paint a picture of the way I think this works. I think the problem with this verse is that people come to it and they want some kind of a formula where they can, you know, push in the magic formula and whammo, they're going to have success over some sin of the flesh within 20 minutes or 24 hours. That's not what I think this passage is teaching, nor what I think that verse is talking about. Let me give you a picture of what I think is being taught here. I want you to imagine a tree that's gone through the winter, and, uh, or maybe it just has dead leaves on it for whatever reason, and that for some reason this tree, like in the springtime, starts to come back to life. It's being watered. It's being fertilized. And as it does, two things happen. New green leaves pop out. Fruit comes. And those dead leaves begin to drop off. Now what I think Paul is saying here is that we have received the Holy Spirit. And as we are exposed to the Word of God and we begin to think like the Spirit of God thinks, We have what he calls later in the book of Romans a renewed mind. We think differently about things. And as that happens, the old dead leaves drop off and the new fruit of the Holy Spirit is produced in our lives. So that Paul is simply saying in these verses, you are not a debtor to live according to the flesh because you have received the Holy Spirit, and if you now cultivate that spiritual life, you will actually put to death the deeds of the body. You're not obligated to live according to the flesh. You're obligated to live according to the Spirit. 1985, there was an earthquake in Mexico City. The pictures of what happened were transmitted to the United States via satellite. It showed pictures of death and destruction and devastation. There were fires, piles of concrete, rescue workers frantically searching through the rubble for possible victims that were still alive. Someone has reported that at the end of one of those transmissions via satellite, At the bottom of the picture was the little caption, courtesy of capital S, capital I, capital N, which stood for the Spanish International Network. But just think, apart from that for a second, of the picture. Here is destruction. Here is devastation. Courtesy of sin. Now that's what Paul is saying. You want to know what sin will give you? Walking according to the flesh? It'll give you destruction and devastation. You're not, as a believer in Jesus Christ, obligated. You are not a debtor to do that. Rather, you have received the Holy Spirit who enables you through his process of sanctification, of producing in you Christ-likeness, and you're obligated to walk according to the Spirit. So the first reason we're obligated to walk according to the Spirit is the spirit produces life and the flesh produces death and destruction. There is a second reason. In verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now in these three verses, he's talking about the fact that we are sons or children of God. At the end of verse 14, he speaks of us being sons of God. In verse 15, he speaks of us being adopted and crying, Abba, Father. In verse 16, he talks about us being children of God. So the second argument as to why you should walk according to the Spirit is simply that you are a child of God. You have received the Holy Spirit by which you're able to produce spiritual life and you are a child of God. Now let's look at the details. He says in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? He is simply saying in this verse, to be Spirit-led is an indication that you are a son of God. Being led of the Spirit means that you are a child of God. The question is, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit? I think the most popular understanding of this is that the Holy Spirit somehow communicates to us. He nudges us. He gives us impressions as to what to do. I think most evangelicals in this country from a long tradition have been under the impression that that's what the leading of the Holy Spirit means. It has gotten absurd and ridiculous in days of late in that some have carried this to the extreme of the Holy Spirit telling you what tie to put on in the morning or what dress to wear. Now, I am of the opinion that that is not at all what Paul is talking about when he uses the phrase being led by the Spirit. The question is, how does the Holy Spirit lead us? And my answer is, he leads us through the Word of God. That earlier in this passage, he talked about being, about walking in the Spirit. And I, and again, I'm not alone in this interpretation, along with many others think that being led by the Spirit and walking in the Spirit are two ways of saying virtually the same thing. I walk in the Spirit as I am basically being obedient to the Word of God and I am being led by the Holy Spirit as I do what the Word of God tells me to do. After all, the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God through human authors. So as I am obeying the Scripture, I am being led by the Spirit of God. Now these two are similar, and yet they are different. To talk about walking in the Spirit conveys the connotation of activity and effort on my part. As I have facetiously said on several occasions, the Bible does not say sit in the Spirit, it says walk in the Spirit. And that denotes some kind of activity, effort on my part. Being led, on the other hand, is the passive side of this. That walk implies effort and activity. That's the active side. Being led depicts the passive side. 
of being dependent on something or someone, in this case, the Holy Spirit. But even the passive connotation does not rule out the active participation of the person involved. I think there are two extremes when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. One is the people that put all the emphasis on you do it all in your energy and effort. The other extreme is that you do nothing. You let go and let God do it all. I am of the opinion that both of those are wrong and both of them are true all at the same time. That there is an active sense in which we put forth effort and we obey the Word of God. There is this dependent side of the spiritual life where I am admittedly dependent upon the Word of God and the person of the Holy Spirit to give me the power to do what the Word of God says. So while being led emphasizes the passive side of the spiritual life, it by no means rules out the active side of my being involved in the process. Just imagine somebody being led through a crowd. On several occasions, I've had to lead people through a crowd. I've taken tours, and we had to get through a busy airport. You know, it's full steam ahead, folks. Follow me. Everybody trucked along behind. I led the way, and they were at my mercy. They had no idea where we were going to end up. Sometimes I didn't either. But we were moving out. But even that concept of them being dependent upon me to lead does not rule out that they still had to walk. So there is still the active side, even in the passive concept, of being led by the Spirit. At any rate, what Paul is saying in verse 14 is as you are led by the Spirit, you, those are the people who are the sons of God. Now I think the question comes up, can you not be led by the Spirit and be a son of God? And my answer to that would be yes. Not all of God's children are led by the Spirit all the time. But in the finest sense of the term, as you are being led by the Spirit, that is when you are being the child of God in the fullest sense of the term. Now Paul argues in verse 15, For if you did not, because you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, the first part of this verse is a reference to your pre-conversion days. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. In another book called Galatians, the Apostle Paul argues that we, before our conversion to Christ, were under the bondage of the law. In fact, the whole, book of, the whole point of the book of Galatians is that we've been freed from the law. He also argues in that book that we were, we Gentiles were in bondage. Not just the Jews to the law, but even us Gentiles were in bondage before our conversion to Christ. Now he is arguing in Romans chapter 8 verse 15 
that when you became a Christian, when you trusted Jesus Christ, you did not receive again the spirit of bondage to fear. That is, the spirit we've received is not the spirit of bondage. It is not the spirit of fear. The spirit of fear is that I'm going to somehow be punished. I am afraid I am going to be punished by God if I do not perform. Now, Paul says that is not the spirit we received. Rather, as children of God, we received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And as you've heard before, Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. Father is the Greek word for Father. Abba, Father, Father, Father. Or some like to say Abba means Dada. I'm not exactly sure that's provable, but... um, At any rate, the point Paul is making is that we have not the spirit of bondage and of fear and of being terrified of being punished, but we're God's children. I'm a son of God. And there is just this spirit within me that wants to say, Father, that wants to pray, that wants to talk to God. So that is what he is saying. And he is using this as an explanation in verse 15 of the fact that we are sons of God. One of the explanations and even proofs that we are sons of God is that we have this spirit within us that wants to cry out, Abba, Father. Then he says in verse 18, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now look at this verse carefully. He is simply saying that believers know that they are God's children because of this witness of the Holy Spirit. Only he does not say the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. He says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. I think verse 16 needs to be connected to verse 15. That is, in verse 15, he's talking about prayer. And what he is saying in verse 16 is, when we cry out, Abba, Father, when we address God as Father, the Spirit of God within us bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Not exactly sure how experiential that is, though many would claim that it is very experiential. But later in this passage, he says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession with us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So this is not intelligible communication. There is this work of the Spirit of God within us that prays with us and for us. But it's not something that we can utter or verbalize. There are sometimes these groanings. I think there's a sense in which I have sometimes experienced that, as I have agonized before the Lord. And there were times when I could just sit silent before Him and groan. And the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. Now, all of that's the explanation of all these little details. But what I want you to understand is in the development of the passage, in the flow of thought through the passage, what he is saying is this. We're children of God. That's the point of verse 14. We're sons of God. That's the point of verse 15. We have the spirit of adoption. We call God Father. We are his children. And that's the point of verse 16. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We are the children of God. The point he's making is we're God's children. And that's why we're obligated to walk in the spirit. We are God's children. We know who we are and that makes a difference in our lives. It makes us of value. It makes us worth something. A number of years ago, several centuries ago, there was a German philosopher named Schleiermacher. That name probably doesn't mean much to you, but he was actually a very famous philosopher who did a lot to mold modern thinking, I might add, toward ungodliness. At any rate, as an old man, he was once sitting on a bench alone, and a policeman thought he was a vagrant, and he approached him and said, Who are you? And Schleiermacher looked up at him and said, I wish I knew. Those of the world do not know who they are. They are looking for their identity so that some today talk about trying to find themselves. They're lost. They don't know who they are. A Christian, on the other hand, knows exactly who he is. He is a child of God. And that gives him value, and that gives him worth. Sam Levelson, the comedian, was once standing amongst some tall men. And somebody said to him, how does it feel to be a short guy standing amongst all these tall people? And he said, like a dime among a bunch of pennies. Now the world may look at us as short and insignificant and nobody. But God looks down and sees our worth. We're valuable. We are his children. Paul is arguing. That's why you ought to walk according to the Spirit. You're not obligated. You are not in debt to the flesh. You are in debt to the Holy Spirit to walk according to the Spirit. There is a third reason why you ought to walk according to the Spirit, and it's in verse 17. He says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified together. The third reason is rather obvious. It's connected, in a sense, to being children, but it's different than being children. It is simply that we are obligated to walk in the Spirit because we are heirs. If you're a child of God, you are an heir of God. 
If you know Jesus Christ and you are a son of God by faith, then you are an heir. Now, what do you inherit? Well, a number of things. But among them, you inherit eternal life. In Titus chapter 3, we are told, in verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I am an heir of God, and as an heir of God, I inherit, among other things, eternal life. Now, frankly, this analogy, this metaphor of uh, being an heir breaks down because normally to get your inheritance, the one that leaves the will has to die. In this case, to get your inheritance, you have to die. God doesn't die. And so the metaphor breaks down. But be that as it may, the Bible teaches that if you're a child of God, you are an heir. Or to put the same thing another way, in order to get in on God's inheritance, all you have to do is trust his son. And when you trust his son, and you are in Christ, God blesses you with all spiritual blessings in Christ, in heavenly places. And you are an heir of God. And if for no other reason, you ought to walk according to the Spirit because of all of the blessings that God has showered upon you. There is the story of a very wealthy man, I believe in England, who died leaving no heirs. So they decided to auction off his, his property. One of his possessions was a picture of a son he had had who had died while still a young boy. At the auction, there was only one lady interested in that picture. She was shabbily dressed. No one else was interested in that old picture but her. And so she got it, and they sold it to her. And then they asked her why she wanted that, of all things. And she explained that she knew that little boy, that she was his nurse, and that she loved him dearly and cared for him. And she was deeply grieved when he died. As she examined the picture, an envelope fell out of the back, and it was the missing will of this very wealthy man. And as the will explained, whoever got this picture, whoever cared enough for my son, would inherit all of my possessions. And she got it all because she loved his son. You trust God's son and you become an heir of God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ, you are an heir. You are blessed with all spiritual blessings. So you are by no stretch of the imagination a debtor to walk according to the flesh, but you are a debtor to walk according to the flesh. 
to the Spirit. Now, very interesting little statement left in this passage. Then he adds, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, do you see the problem? Frankly, this verse has bothered me for years. The first part of the verse says, that if you're a child of God, you're an heir, right? The back side of the verse says, you're a joint heir. Well now, is being an heir and a joint heir the same thing? Most Bible teachers and commentaries would say yes. Now what bothers me about that interpretation is that he clearly says in the latter part of the verse that in order to be a joint heir, you've got to suffer. But in order to be an heir, all you have to do is to be a child of God. Now, how do you put those two things together? Well, the way some do it is they argue that if you are a Christian, you will suffer. So to say that you're a child of God and to say you're a sufferer are two ways of saying the same thing. I've never been persuaded that that's totally true. I think there are some Christians who don't follow Christ and therefore don't suffer the reproach of being one of his followers, which is the kind of thing suffering is talking about in this passage. I've come to the conclusion that there is a difference between being an heir and being a joint heir. For one thing, this passage says you're an heir of God. On the other hand, you're a joint heir with Christ. Secondly, it says that to be an heir of God, all you have to do is to be a child of God. But it seems to me he's saying in the latter part of verse 17 that in order to be a joint heir with Christ, you must suffer. And if you do suffer, you will then reign with him. Now, one of the things, the observations I've just made persuaded me that that's correct. But one of the things that also persuades me is another passage. I want you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a second. 2 Timothy chapter 2 for a second. Notice he says in Romans 8, 17, If indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified together. And I think that there's a sense in which if you suffer, you will reign with Christ. He says in 2 Timothy 2, 11, This is a faithful saying, If we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure meaning enduring things like suffering, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself, which it seems to me is one of the greatest verses 
in all of the New Testament for eternal security. But what I want you to see is that in order to reign with him, to be glorified together with him, you need to endure. There is a difference between just being a child of God and being a joint heir and suffering with Christ. So I think these two things are different. In the Old Testament, the firstborn got a double inheritance. Do you remember that? So there's a sense in which you can be an heir and get an inheritance. And there's a sense in which you could get a double inheritance. Now, would you like to have an inheritance? Or would you like to have a double portion? How greedy are you spiritually? Well, I think what this passage is arguing is that if you've trusted Christ, you're an heir. You get eternal life. And some other things. If you suffer with Christ, you become a joint heir and you rule and reign with Christ in the millennium, and you get a double portion, so to speak. Hence the parable of the talents. Some are going to rule over five cities, some are going to rule over ten cities, and some are going to be street cleaners. They're going to be in the kingdom. They're children of God. They get an inheritance, but they don't get the inheritance like those who suffer with Christ and rule and reign with him. So, we have an inheritance. That ought to motivate us to walk according to the Spirit. Back in Scotland in the days when the Covenanters, as they were called, were being persecuted for being Christians, a young girl was going to a meeting of believers And she knew that on the road she was going to get stopped by the soldiers and asked where she was going. So she prayed on the way and said, Lord, give me something to tell them so that I won't be telling a lie. Sure enough, on the way, the soldiers stopped her and wanted to know where she was going. And she explained, my elder brother died and I'm going to a meeting to hear the reading of his will. You've trusted Jesus Christ. You have an elder brother. And he has a will. And very frankly, some are going to inherit more than others. I entitled this message, Obligation and Opportunity. As you look at the passage, he starts out, verse 12, We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And he doesn't finish the thought as such, but the idea, though never stated, is we are debtors to the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit. And then I think he gives us reasons why. The Spirit produces life. The flesh produces death. We're children of God. We're heirs of God. So the thrust of the passage is that we are to be walking according to the Spirit. We're obligated to live according to the Spirit because the Holy Spirit produces in us 
the life of sonship and heirship. And on top of that, we have the opportunity to become joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a Christian, you face the pressure of the flesh. You face the desires of the flesh. And it's easy to give in to the flesh. What Paul is arguing is you're not a debtor to the flesh. You don't have to make those mortgage payments. Rather, what you should do is walk according to the Spirit in obedience to the Word of God, in dependence upon the Spirit of God. You simply adopt the attitudes and the values and the purposes of the Scripture. You begin to think God's thoughts after Him until you become more and more conformed to the image of His Son. You're obligated to do that if you're a Christian. Because God bought you, the Spirit of God invaded you and indwelt you, you have a future inheritance in, in heaven. That's your obligation. But it seems to me that there is, at the end of verse 17, another motivation. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to be glorified together with Him in the sense of ruling and reigning with Him. So everything that he has done for you and in you argues that you are obligated to walk according to the Spirit. Your position as a son, your potential as a joint heir, sums up your obligation and your opportunity, all of which should be your motivation to walk according to the Spirit. Last time we looked at Romans 8, 1 through 11, and I concluded by talking about the fact that in those early verses, he talks about being spiritually minded. He talks about walking according to the Spirit. In verses 5 and 6 of Romans 8, he talks about being spiritually minded. That's a critical word, a key word, in this chapter, means to adopt the values and the purposes of the Spirit of God. And in verses 1 and 4, he talks about walking according to the Spirit, so that there is information I have to put in my head. It's more than just information. It's adopting the attitude. It's adopting the perspective. It's having the point of view of the Spirit of God. And then there are choices to make. I walk, and that involves effort and decision on my part. The spiritual life is a life of being spiritually minded, of walking according to the Spirit. And that's what every child of God ought to do, and he ought to do it simply because of all that God has done for him. He has saved him. He's given him a future home called heaven. He's made him a son. He's given him access to the throne so that he can cry, Abba, Father, and pray to God at any time of the day or night. God never gives you a busy signal, and he never goes on vacation. 
And there is the potential of even suffering with Christ and becoming a joint heir with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. There is every reason in the world for you to walk in the Spirit. You are not obligated, you are not a debtor to walk according to the flesh. All the flesh will give you is death, damage, destruction, and devastation. You're obligated, my friend, you're a Christian, to walk according to the Spirit. There once was a man who had a radiant testimony for Jesus Christ. He was a simple man who worked in a factory. But he had a friend who was very antagonistic toward the Christian faith, and one day this friend of his invited him to hear a lecture by a scholar who was an atheist. The Christian went, and after the lecture against Christianity, his friend said to him, well, what did you think? And the Christian responded, I heard the lecture 25 years too late. And his friend said, what do you mean by that? And he said, in the last quarter of a century, everything God has done in me and with me is the exact opposite of what that man was talking about. God has saved me. He's given me peace. He's answered prayer. He's changed my life. I mean, he's just done too much for me to now conclude that he doesn't exist. Now, that's something of what Paul is saying here. God has simply done too much for me not to feel my sense of obligation to walk according to the Spirit. He has done too much in me and with me to conclude that I should be some kind of debtor to the flesh. I am a debtor to walk according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, you are such a gracious, generous God. You've given us your Son You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've made us sons. You've given us access to you as our Father. You've given us an inheritance. and given us the possibility of being rewarded by you and ruling and reigning with your Son. And all of that's only the beginning. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. Now grant us that by your grace we will learn to walk according to the Spirit, to be spiritually minded men and women and young people, thinking your thoughts and choosing your will because of our great indebtedness for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.